Now, let's move on to another one. Again, another prominent problem that Mormons saw in our day and filled the book with truths that would help us combat. This is, to me, one of the greatest evidences that the Book of Mormon is true, because there is no way Joseph could have foreseen the problem that we face today in his day. And I want to introduce it with um, a comment from President Benson. He said, The Book of Mormon brings men to Christ through two basic means. First, it tells in a plain manner of Christ and his gospel. It testifies of his divinity and of the necessity for a redeemer and the need for putting trust in him. So pro-Jesus, the Book of Mormon is all the things that I need to understand. But then the second way it brings me to Christ is that the Book of Mormon exposes the enemies of Christ. It confounds false doctrines and lays down contentions. It fortifies the humble followers of Christ against the evil designs, strategies, and doctrines of the devil in our day. And then this statement, and this is the one I want to shout from the rooftops. The type of apostates in the Book of Mormon are similar to the type we have today. That is a brilliant concept. And when the light dawned in my brain that that was the case, the Book of Mormon took on all new meaning for me. I know how to contend against antichrists in my day because the antichrists in the Book of Mormon used the same tactics they used back then. Therefore, he concludes, God with his infinite foreknowledge so molded the Book of Mormon that we might see the error and know how to combat false educational, political, religious, and philosophical concepts of our time. So tonight we're going to talk about antichrists. Now that's a pretty harsh title. Let me soften it a little bit. We're going to talk about people who leave the church, can't leave the church alone, and deliberately go about trying to destroy your faith. And I would guess every one of us has someone in our inner circle Someone that you know has left the church, can't leave the church alone, and can't not talk to you about it, and is deliberately trying to destroy your faith. As I've asked my class members, tell me who, who in your life is that person who has left the church and is now trying to destroy your faith? And I've heard words like, Father. Mother, sibling, ex-mission companion, childhood best friend. This is a challenge I hate to tell you you're going to deal with. People are going to leave the church, can't leave the church alone, and are coming after your faith. And they're going to use the same tactics that they used in the Book of Mormon. So tonight we're going to take a look at the Antichrist of the Book of Mormon. What do we learn? How do I combat? Now, I am not interested in destroying them. We're not about taking them out. What we're about is empowering ourselves to not, be fall, to not fall into their traps. So I want to make a list tonight. How do you combat the influence of an Antichrist? anti-Mormon, anti-church, anti-faith, 
anti-Joseph Smith, whatever you want to use, it's kind of the same tactic. How do you combat the tactics? So that's the list we're going to make, and I'm going to put it right here in the center board. How do we combat? So how How do I combat an antichrist? Number one, I would suggest you need to learn to recognize. Learn to recognize common tactics because one way or another, they're all going to do one or all of these. Now, in doing this, if you want to take some time on another day, we're not going to this. We can't get into the four antichrists, but let me just give you there are four antichrists in the Book of Mormon. If we had Alma the Younger's teachings when he was apostate, we'd have another one. We're not going to include Zeezrom or the priests of Noah because they're just contending against a prophet. We're going to talk about those who deliberately go about trying to destroy faith. And the four in the Book of Mormon are Sherem in Jacob 7. Sherem in Jacob 7. Deliberately attempting to destroy faith. The second one is Nehor. Now, we don't get a lot of Nehor, but if you want to look at the effect of the Nehor, do you remember the Amlicites that put the mark on their forehead? Those were of the order of Nehor. That's a whole group of Nehorites. And so Nehor in Alma 1. There's number two. Number three is the most famous one, Korahor. And Alma 30, who's actually called Antichrist. And the fourth one comes right after Korahor. In fact, this is a Mormon saw something significant. Anyone know who, how Korahor dies? He's trampled by the very next group. He's trampled. So it tells you something about Satan, right? He'll use you until you're no longer useful, and then he'll just remove you and trample you over by the very next person he's using. So the next group are the Zoramites. And I, I don't, we don't know the name of their leader. Maybe he, I'm just going to say Zoramites. And that's Alma. We'll just focus on 31. That's where Alma starts to contend, and then he turns and he preaches to the poor Zoramites, 32 on. But those are four antichrists. I would encourage you to have four windows open and have each one of those, because we're going to flip back and forth and watch how they do these things that we're going to talk about. So I have four windows in my scriptures, or print scriptures, I have four fingers. So you may want to just jump around and be able to find all four of them. So number one, learn to recognize their tactics. And so let me see if I can share three common tactics that you find in, in many of these. Now, just before we do that, would these, three, would these four people agree with each other? 
They wouldn't, would they? Are they all religious? They're not. And antichrists come in all shapes of, and sizes. So learning to recognize some common techniques. Now, technique number one is they will all use the F word. Not the one you're thinking of, but they will use the antichrist F word. And that is, you are a fool. Their tactic is to make you feel foolish. Now think about it. What do people do when they're made to feel foolish? They push back and they resist, right? So the tactic is, if I can make you feel foolish for believing what you believe, you'll push away from it. And I've got you. Think about all the anti-Mormon websites and all the anti-Mormon propaganda that you've heard and how much of it is geared towards making you feel foolish for believing something. They will harp on the fact that Joseph Smith put his head in a hat. That's just weird. And you're a fool if you believe that. And that's the F word. The Antichrist F word is you are a fool if you believe these things. Let me show it to you. Alma chapter 30. Korahor uses that word so many times. Let's start in verse 13. O ye that are bound down under a foolish and vain hope. There's the plea to make you feel foolish. Why do you yoke yourselves with such foolish things? Verse 14, foolish traditions. Verse 16, all of you Mormons, everyone who believes what you believe, have what in verse 16? A frenzied mind. You're deranged because you believe these things. Jump down to verse 23. Korahor says to the priest, because I do not teach the foolish traditions of your fathers, because I do not teach this people to bind themselves down under foolish ordinances and performances, which are laid down by ancient priests who usurp power over them. You're, gonna, you're seeing the second one. Usurp power and authority over them to keep them in ignorance. There it is. The leaders of the church know something that you don't know. And they're keeping you in ignorance. Not true. But that's their tactic. Their tactic is to make you feel foolish. It is not foolish to believe in God. It is not foolish to believe in a restoration. It is not foolish to believe in the Book of Mormon. But there's the attempt. So watch out for that tactic. James. And their dad. And their dad a fool, even though Nephi combats it and says, hey, no, you just haven't asked. Yeah. You haven't gotten that testimony for yourself. So yeah. Like and he never allows himself to feel foolish. Mm-hmm. Our brother is a fool who thinks he can build a boat. And his response is, he builds a boat. I love it. Okay, did you hear in Korahor the next one? You are not free. You are dumb sheep just led around by a prophet who tells you what to do and you all jump off the cliff when he tells you to. You are restricted. You are bound down. You're fools 
and you're restricted. Religion does what? I've heard this from every anti-Mormon I've ever listened to. Religion does what? Restricts. And when they leave the church, people often say, I, I find it fascinating, they go out of their way to say they feel free. As if the whole time they were bound down. That is the tactic. That I am free and you are not. Watch Korahor do that. I wish I could show these, but our internet's out, so you may want to mark these in two different colors. I have all the, you're a fool in one color and you're bound down in another. Let's go back to verse 13 and notice both of them. Alma 30, this is Korahor. Verse 13, O ye that are bound down under a foolish and vain hope. There's both of them. You are bound down and you're foolish. Why do you yoke yourself? That's how they portray religion and specifically the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. The word of wisdom is a yoke. I am free. The reality is... The gospel sets us free. But there's the idea. Jump down to verse 18. He tells them to lift up their heads. Isn't that the idea? Religion binds you down, and when you leave religion, you lift up your heads. Verse 23 again. Because I do not teach the foolish traditions of your fathers and because I do not teach this people to bind themselves down under the foolish ordinances and performances which are laid down by ancient priests to do what? What are the prophets doing? Usurping power and authority. To keep us in ignorance that we may not lift up our heads, but be brought down. Verse 24, you say that this people is a free people. Behold, I say they are in bondage. Jump to 27. This is a common one, especially among the youth. If Satan can convince the youth that religion is keeping them from what? Go to the very end of 27. The suggestion that religion is keeping you from your rights and privileges. You're being denied something that you have a right to. Do you see their tactic? Very effective, isn't it? Because what do most people do when you suggest they're not free? What's the reaction to someone who says you're not free? Oh yeah, watch me, right? And they've got you. So you are a fool, you are bound down. You starting to recognize these tactics all around you? Anyone ever go to general conference? I almost hate going to general conference because of the people you have to deal with as you go into the conference center. And that's what you're going to get. You're a fool. You're restricted. Now, let me show you one more. Go to Jacob chapter 7. Open up to Sherem. Look at verse 2. I love this comment. What did Sherem strive to do? I think this is true of all Antichrist. End of verse 2. All Antichrist will strive to overthrow. The overthrow. But how? 
How do antichrists strive to overthrow it? It's not that they teach falsehoods that are so blatantly false. They, they, they teach truth with a twist. It's always something built on truth that resonates, but then they twist it a little bit. Let's do all three of these. Let's go through all four of these, and you see if you can identify the truth it's built upon and then the twist that leads you astray. Let's start with Sherem. Since we're in Jacob chapter 7, verse 7 is his basic doctrine. And what is Sherem saying? That Jacob has led them astray in perverting the right way of God, which is what? What was the right way? The law of Moses. In other words, you need saving. You need to be saved. But the twist is that something else will save you. Not Jesus. Something else. Now, Latter-day Saints are very susceptible to this one. What do Latter-day Saints think is the something else that will save them? Their own obedience. I have to be good enough. And there's the twist. And it will lead you astray. It will create a burden on your shoulders that you cannot carry. And it will lead you astray. What's the truth? You need saving, and who's your Savior? He is the Savior. He's the one you need. And no one else, not even yourself, can save you. There's the truth. But don't let that twist cause you to go astray. Do you see his twist? You need saving. I acknowledge you need saving, but something else will save you. And he pushes you away from Jesus and overthrows that doctrine. Let's do Nehor. Go to Alma chapter one. What's the truth with a twist? Alma chapter one, verse four is his central doctrine. Tell me what it is. What, does ne what do the people after the order of Nehor believe? that everyone's going to be saved. There is a redeemer and we're so redeemed and God so loves, he loves us so much that he won't let anyone perish. Now, what's the truth here? Is it true that everyone will be saved? Yes. How? Saved from death. Every single person born into this world will be Saved from death. And practically speaking, how many people will be sons of perdition? So few that we could basically say what? Everyone will be saved into a kingdom of glory. But what's the twist here? If I say, hey, everyone's going to be saved, do you work harder? Does your obedience increase? Does it stay the same? What's the twist here? If everyone's going to be saved, then why worry? And boom, he's got me. He overthrew the doctrine of Christ by emphasizing that everyone's going to be saved. Do you see the twist? Nephi talks about that same thing. There will be many that will say, eat, drink, and be merry. Nevertheless, 
Fear God. He will justify in committing a little sin. Yea, lie a little. Dig a pit for thy neighbor. Do all these things because there's no harm in this. And if it so be that we're guilty, God will stripe, smite us with a few stripes and then we'll be saved. I have heard people tell me, God loves me too much to destroy me. Is that true, that God loves you a great deal? Yes, but do you see the twist that's going to lead you astray? There's always truth with a twist. Okay, Korahor. I will try not to get on my soapbox, but Korahor is one I have combated my whole life. I know some people see this differently. Um, let me just tell you how I see it. Alma chapter 30 is Korahor. Verse 17 is his core doctrine. It's very, very popular today. What is Korahor's core doctrine? That every man fares in this life according to the management of the creature. Therefore, every man prospers according to his genius, and every man conquers according to his strength, and whatsoever man does is no crime. Now, there is somewhere among God's creations where that is true. Some of Heavenly Father's creations live that law. Survival. With no moral code. It's just survival. Where is that lived? In the animal kingdom. That is the law of the animal kingdom. There is no moral code, is there? There's just survival. So if I'm, if I'm a buck with no does and over there is a buck with seven does, what do I do? I go kill him. I challenge him and I kill him. I challenge him to the death. And when I kill him, the does become mine. Have I committed some moral infraction in the animal kingdom? Do the does resent me for it, that I took out their lover? No, what do they do? Just accept me? Do I go to jail? Do the animals put me in jail? Because why? In the animal kingdom, there is no moral code, just survival. So what is Korahor suggesting? that we are animals. And tell me what the predominant theories of today are suggesting. That we are evolved animals. Therefore, what rule do we live? We live the laws of the animal kingdom. Therefore, it's survival and there's no moral code. Very effective false teaching. Built on a truth. Do you see how it's true? Among the animal kingdom, that is exactly true. But the twist is that we are animals. And we are not. We have a moral code. Have you ever watched people stop at red lights when no one else is there? Middle of the night, three in the morning. How many of you stop at the red light and wait till it turns green? With no one else coming. Why? Is that what an animal would do? No, because we have an instinctive moral code. How in the world do self-checkouts even work? The only way self-checkouts work or, or pay your own taxes, the only way that works is if we have a moral code. And to me, that moral code is the greatest evidence of God. Can I ask you a question, Hallie? 
you give birth to a mentally retarded child. Do you kill it? Do you murder your child? You raise it? Do you know what that's going to cost you? Do you still raise it? What if it limits the number of other children you have? Would you still keep it? Either that's the dumbest animal on the planet or she's not an animal. And that moral code inside her is evidence that we are not animals and that there is a God. But do you see what core horse twist is? Always truth with a twist. James. I just was thinking, I just read what's over man with no crime. And the phrase that I've heard more often too is, oh, that's your truth. It's your truth. Own your truth. That's right. Don't criticize me for living my truth. And my truth is simply survive you. And it's, it's built on that philosophy that we're animals and that where there is no moral code. No, there is a moral code and it's his truth that we live. Okay, let's do this one. Tell me what their twist was. You know the story of the Zoramites and the Ramiumptum. What's the truth? What's the twist? Their whole twist is that God has favorites, right? Now, what's the truth behind that? God chose Abraham and favored Abraham. But why? Not because he liked Abraham best, but because Abraham had a responsibility, right? What came with that Abrahamic blessing? An Abrahamic responsibility. There's the truth that God does choose a select few to do his work and he does bless them. But what else does he put on their shoulders? A greater responsibility. But that was perceived by the Zoramites as what? God has favorites. Now there's two twists there. God has favorites and it's me. If you think that you're God's favorite, tell me how you act. In a very opposite God way, right? The other twist is God has favorites and you'll never be one of them. If you believe that, what's your conclusion? Then why try? Why try? Do you see the twist? Always truth with a twist. They start with truth and then they twist it. So give me some modern examples. Those of you who have watched people do the same thing. Give me an example of a modern day truth with a twist. Like the church does so much humanitarian work, but why don't they build hospitals everywhere? Right. That if we were the church of Jesus Christ, we would take better care of the poor. Mm-hmm. Now, what's the truth? First of all, you have no idea what we do for the poor because we don't toot our own horn when we do it. No one does more for the poor than the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And what's the other twist? What's the other truth? We do for the poor in spirit. There are covenants you need to make in order to receive the blessings that God wants you to receive. And so we're going to make, we're going to facilitate those covenants. But the twist is, if the church were really the church of Christ, it would, take, it would focus only on, the, on taking care of the poor. Truth with a twist. How about 
$100 billion in the bank. What's the twist? Church doesn't need my tithing. Why pay it? Truth with a twist. I noticed recently that I have a lot of friends in my, um, my profession that are of the LGBTQ community, which is fine, but they often will talk about like how we all need to be accepting and loving, and I try my best to be that person to them, and they... But then they often be like, oh, because you're Mormon, you won't do that. Oh, because of this, you won't do that. And, and they're, they're constantly bringing up my religion. And it's like, what happened to being accepting and loving? Like, you asked that of me. That you don't give it. You don't, you, don't, you don't give that to me. I'm constantly judged at yep. work. And I'm like, why? Yep. Like, I am doing my best to be so accepting of you and loving of you. And I'm like, why don't I get that in return? Like, that is such a great example. Like, Truth. With a twist. Yep. Truth and they twist it. I don't have to I don't have to follow the same rules I ask you to follow. And like we don't ever talk about any other religion that anybody else has. I'm like, she's Catholic. We never bring it up that she's Catholic. You got it. But it's constantly brought up that I'm an active member. And I'm like, why does it matter? There it is. There it is. Another one that I heard, and this is actually from members when they changed the like the wording in the first strength of youth. Everybody's like, "Oh, great tattoos!" Are yeah, the, the first strength of youth ta- now says tattoos are okay. Oh, I'm sorry, what page was that? Could you could you show me what page that was? Because it wasn't specifically listed. Like some girl that was in one of our classes was like, "I went and got a tattoo and everything because I grew up in a super Mormon family, and now it's okay." Like you know, she's like, "Now everything I did for rebellion is wrong." You know, like it doesn't even matter yep. anymore. Over and over and over again, learn to recognize that. Let me give you a very common one. Prophets, seers, and revelators receive information from Heavenly Father. That's true. What's the twist? Okay, there's another one, but the common one is, then God should tell them everything and they should never make a mistake. If God is speaking to that person, then that person should never make a mistake. You see, that's built on a logical assumption, but it's twisted. And so they parade mistakes that prophets have made as evidence that God doesn't speak to them. Or why don't they speak to everybody? Yeah. It's always truth with a twist. So learn to recognize. I see the tactic. I see it over and over again. They're going to make me feel foolish. They're going to make me feel restricted. And then they're going to take a truth that resonates with all of us. Equality. And then twist it. Beware of the twist. Now, let's keep going because these four are going to teach us some great lessons on how to combat their influence. Let me, let me just go to the Zoramites because prevention is always the best policy. And Alma, I think it's maybe it's not Alma, I think it's Mormon is pointing out why the Zoramites went astray. So Alma 31, this is the Zoramites, 9 and 10. I'll let you read it. Alma 31, 9 and 10. Why does Mormon suggest they fell into great errors? I love the word for. They they had fallen into great errors for. May I raise this one as a warning. The best way to prevent is to what? Keep the commandments of God. And I love verse 10. Observe the performances of the church. And then he mentions the word daily. 
in this church are there daily performances we are asked to observe? Can you name some? Read, pray. Those things I'm asked to do daily and observing them will prevent problems. They had stopped observing them. Are there weekly performances of the church? Are there monthly performances of the church? The one of the greatest defenses is to never let go of the performances. So observe the performances. I have sat on numerous disciplinary councils where some, someone was excommunicated or disfellowshipped. I've always asked the same question every single time. When was the last time you had a daily habit of prayer and scripture study? How long has it been since you had a daily habit of prayer and scripture study? What do you think the number one answer is I hear in disciplinary councils? I don't know. I don't know if I ever had one. I have never been I've never participated in the disfellowshipment or the excommunication of someone who said, I read my scriptures and pray every day. Never. Of all the ones I've participated in, not once have I ever heard someone say, I read my scriptures and pray every day. That is significant to me. Observe the performances of the church. They are protective. Now, a couple others. Let's watch Alma contend against Korahor. I think this is important. It's very important that we understand what he did against Korahor. James. Yep, covenants are performances. And so name a covenant I perform weekly. How often should I repeat that covenant weekly? How about when, I, how often is the suggestion that I renew temple covenants? Monthly, if I can, as often as my frequency will allow me to. Covenants are a performance of the church. Yep. Yep. Based on what they say, Zormites, they're like, I'm better, I'm better, but when you serve, Totally you see the performance of the church. Okay, Alma chapter 30. How does Alma contend face to face against an antichrist? Verse 39 is important. I want to start with 39, but it's not the end. I don't want to write this yet. What does he do in verse 39? Tell me how Alma contends against Ziaz, or, or Korahor. I have a testimony. I know it's true, but now go to verse 44. He lays out his evidence for his testimony. I know a lot of people who have a testimony but can't explain where it came from or why they believe what they believe. Can you say, this is what I believe and this is why I believe it? Are you prepared? There's a beautiful verse in the Bible where Peter says, be ready always to give a reason for the hope that is in you. What is the reason for your testimony? How do you know that God lives? What is your evidence? And so I think it's more than having a testimony. I would suggest it's have a testimony 
based on evidence. So just for fun, what is Alma's evidence that there is a God? He says in verse 49, I know that there is a God and that Christ will come. And then in verse 44, he says, I have four powerful evidences. What's his first evidence? That's the second. That's his third one. That's his second one. The testimony of all these thy brethren. How many people on this planet believe in a supreme being? Billions. Billions of people believe in a supreme being. How in the world would animals, how in the world would billions of animals get the idea that there's a supreme being? That is not logical. That does not make sense that so many people believe in a supreme being. That's his evidence, number one. Number two, eyewitnesses. Credible eyewitnesses. Joseph Smith stood up and said, I've seen him. And then how did he live his life? He lived a life that made his, his testimony credible. He fined a black man and then gave him his horse so he could pay the fine. He testified he had seen God and then he lived a credible life that makes it hard to dismiss his testimony. Number three, what's his third evidence that there's a God? How in the world would you explain the scriptures if there's no supreme being? Why would they even have been written? Who would have written them and why and for what reason? And why do so many people love them? Why are you here tonight studying them if there is no God? And fourth, all things. If you've studied thermodynamics, the second law of thermo, thermo, thermodynamics says that everything is increasing in randomness. If you don't put energy into a system, it increases in randomness, right? If you don't put energy into your room, what happens? Or your garden or your lawn. If you don't put energy into it, it increases in randomness. Therefore, we should see chaos in the universe. And tell me what we see. Incredible order, which means what? Some divine power, some supreme power is putting energy into this system. And there is order. That to Alma was significant evidence. Katie. Um, we had a discussion in early society um, last Sunday about how the, the title of lessons was patterns and how God works and makes himself, like manifests himself through patterns and order. And something that I like realized and shared with the class is that like everything, like DNA or molecules, atoms, like everything has some structure or pattern to it. So everything therefore has like God in it. Yes. And it was, I, it was like a confidence booster, like, whoa, I have God in me. Yeah. Because science says, if not, your whole system would be increasing in chaos and randomness. Yeah. And when you see order in the pattern, there is a divine source of energy that is keeping that order. So do you see, don't get caught up in his evidence as much as you saw what Alma just did. Did you see what Alma just did? I know it's true. And here's how I know it's true. Have a testimony based on evidence. I know beyond 
my ability to doubt that this book is true. Whoever wrote this book understands the human condition better than the most brilliant doctors and philosophers and social workers combined. Because as I study this book, I see everything that's broken with humanity and solutions for it. The very me- this very message on Antichrist, how in the world could a 23-year-old have written that in a single draft with no outside sources and never going back to correct any mistakes? And he did it in 70 days. You know how long J.R.R. Tolkien took to write Lord of the Rings? And how many drafts it took? Joseph was 23. He was 23 when the book was published. One draft in, in, in front of multiple witnesses who all testified he didn't have any outside sources. And he didn't go back and make any revisions. That's astounding that he could have written this story alone. That's my evidence. So people say, well, he put his head in a hat. (laughs) Have a testimony based on evidence. Let me add number four. I'm getting kind of low, so I'm going to go over here. Number four. I see a constant pattern. Let me show you the pattern, and then you tell me what you want to write up here. Let's start with, with um, Sherem. Go to uh, Jacob chapter 7. After the whole issue with Sherem, after the whole thing was over, have you ever like been in an accident and you were injured because you weren't wearing a seatbelt? And then what do you do every time you get in a car after that? You deliberately put your seatbelt on as if to say, I now acknowledge what? That this would have prevented my problem. So after Sherem, after they establish order, what do they specifically do after that? Jump down to verse 23. After they restore order, they deliver, it says they deliberately do what? They, want to, they, they deliberately search the scriptures as if to say, I am never not wearing my seatbelt again. Do you see that action? Okay, Alma chapter 1. How does Gideon contend against Nehor? Verse 7. End of verse 7. How does Gideon contend against Nehor? He astonished him with the, admonished him with the words of God. Go to the Zoramites. Go to Alma chapter 31. You know this verse, this famous verse that precedes the preaching to the Zoramites. Verse 5. Someone read it. Alma 31, 5. What is the antidote? Amanda, do you mind? Verse 5. And now as the preaching of the word had a great tendency to lead the people to do that which was just, yea, it had... It had had more powerful effect upon the minds of the people than the sword or anything else which had happened unto them. Therefore, Alma thought it was expedient that they should try the virtue of the word. So what was Alma going to use to contend with the Zoramites? Do you see it? One more. Jacob chapter 4, 
What would make us unshakable? What would cause us to be unshakable? I think we can put the last few together. Look at verse 6. Jacob 4, verse 6. He says, we search the prophets. There's this one, number 4. And we have many revelations ourselves. That's number 3. We search the prophets and have many revelations. And because of that, our faith becomes unshaken. So I think number four is go to the well. Know the doctrine, know the scriptures, have roots, go to the well. The people who, these people understood the connection between scripture and not being fooled. So I'm just going to simply write scripture. Now, let me very quickly do one more because I need to raise a caution. Turn with me to Alma chapter 30. Do you remember how the story of Korahor ends? He struck deaf and dumb. And when he does, he confesses. Tell me what he confesses at the end. What does Korahor acknowledge? In verse 52, what does he acknowledge? I always knew there was a God. Why the heck did you teach that there wasn't then? Verse 53. If you always knew there was, why did you teach there wasn't? You need to know this. Middle of verse 53. Why did he teach it? Tell me what you know about anti-Mormon material. It is pleasing to the carnal mind and you can get sucked in. I can testify of that. Anti-Mormon material is carnally pleasing. And it can suck you in. Why does Alma not lift the curse? Verse 55. Even though he just confessed, I always knew there was a God. Why does he not lift the curse? You'd go right back to it. That's how carnally pleasing it is. Some people get sucked in because it's carnally pleasing and then they believe it. Beware. You need to be able to answer their questions, but beware that you can get completely sucked in. Sometimes it's best. Tell me how the anti-Nephi-Lehi's did it. What did the anti-Nephi-Lehi's do when Korahor went among them? Go back to 19 and 20. Alma 30, 19 and 20. Tell me what the anti-Nephi-Lehi's did. They just kicked him out. I don't need to hear this garbage. I don't need to hear this garbage. Or what did the high priest do in verse 20? I don't have to answer your question. Now, if you're seriously asking a question, I'm going to answer it. But if you're just trying to destroy my faith, I don't have to answer your question. Notice it says the high priest, when they saw that he would revile even against God, would not make any reply. One of the ways they pull you in is they ask all these questions. And if you can't answer their questions, you will feel like a fool and begin to doubt what you believe. You don't have to have every answer to their questions. 
because the kind of questions they ask are hard to answer. Can I just one more? We do go back to Alma chapter 11, where Zeezrom is contending against Alma. What kind of questions does he ask? Let's make a list of the questions. Verse 28, name a question that Zeezrom asks Alma, or Amulek, asks Amulek. That's a hard question to answer, right? Do gods come in ones, twos, or threes? Yes. We believe in God, the eternal father, right? There's one God. It's our heavenly father, but we believe there's a mother and we believe there's a savior and a testifier and they're all gods. So is there one, two or three? Yes. That would be a hard question to answer. Now is, is Yezrem seeking an answer? Or is he just trying to trip Amulek up? Notice verse 34. Shall he save his people in their sins? Verse 30, 40, 38. Is Jesus the father? What's the answer? Yes and no. Depends on what you mean. He's asking questions that need some clarification. They're not easy to answer. That's what anti-Mormons do. They deliberately ask the questions that are hard to answer because they're not seeking an answer. And so sometimes you just need to say what? I don't need to answer. I know, and here's my evidence. So have a testimony based on evidence. Go to the source, have connections to the source, and then you spell out number five, beware because their teachings are carnally pleasing and suck you in. Katie. I just want to share a response I gave to somebody one time, and I don't know if it's confrontational or not, but um, there's a guy that we used to work with too, who matches all these descriptions. And so whenever he would ask like those questions to just stir you up and not because of the answer, I would just be like, that's a great question. You should take that to God. Like maybe God will give you a better answer than I can. Yeah. You ask God. I love it. <laughs> I had, an, I had an interesting episode that really confirmed this. I had a student who was dating an anti-Mormon and trying to destroy her faith. And she said, I just can't answer his questions. Could you answer some of it? Could I bring him here and you answer his questions? And I said, you have him come with his five most sought after questions. You give me, a, have him bring his top five questions. And I felt like we answered the five. Now tell me what his response was. I have five more. And if we'd answered those, there's the tactic. And so guess what I said to her? Uh, we're no more. This isn't going to go anywhere. She kept wanting to bring him back and have me answer five more questions. What's the point? He's not asking for himself. Is that helpful? I bear you my testimony. You will contend against those who are trying to destroy your faith. Take lessons from the people in the Book of Mormon who did the same thing. Brilliantly put together book is telling you exactly how to contend, how to combat their influence. I leave you my testimony. I wish I had time to give you my evidence, but I have a testimony based on evidence and I can't walk away from it. I just know what I know and I can't answer every question, 
but I know what I know. And I say that in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.